Hi, I'm Bill Crystal. Welcome back to Conversations. I'm very pleased to be joined today by Ed Glazer, Chairman of the Economics Department at Harvard University, a very distinguished microeconomist. I'm stressing that, Ed, since I don't know. I think I think you microeconomists have a slight disdain is too strong, right? But a slight preference for being microeconomist to macroeconomist. Um, Ed is known best perhaps as an er economist of uh, urban things and of cities and a student of cities in ways that go beyond economics. And maybe we'll, we'll touch on that, but a uh, very excellent book that people should read from 2012, Triumph of the City, um, how our uh, great greatest invention makes us richer, smarter, uh, healthier, and happier. Uh, that's impressive. And, um, and then a book, <laughs> Survival of the City, uh, about a year ago. So, um, and I saw you just wrote a preface that's coming up for a new edition of Manker Olson's uh, I did, Rise of Climate Nations, yep. Which is coming out in September, so people should look at that. We can even get to talk about that book influenced me some in, in grad school, I think, and had a big influence on political science, maybe more yeah. than in economics. I don't know. Anyway, Ed, thank you for joining me. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. It's great. No, to it's great to have you. So uh, you're a fan of the of, of the city and of cities and the importance of cities, and you've studied them in such an interesting way. Uh, you know, why cities Give, make make the basic case for the fundamental importance of cities? Absolutely. But I want to make it clear from the beginning that I am not advocating that everyone should live in cities, nor am I advocating that the federal government should artificially subsidize cities. But I think that cities have for thousands of years empowered humanity in ways that are incredibly important. I mean, if you think about us as a species, our greatest talent is our ability to work together, right? I mean, on our own, we're really puny creatures. I mean, few of us could take on a bear without, you know, uh, without external help. But collectively, we've done amazing things. Uh, and I, I think we're continuing to do amazing things. And cities have made that possible. Cities enable young people to learn how to be be productive. They enable people to have fun by connecting with other people. They enable us to share joint resources like museums or parks. Uh, and they enable companies to find talent and, and to nurture that talent. So there's a lot to like about cities. And in some sense, the most amazing thing is the comeback of cities since the 1970s. Um, but, you know, uh, I assume we'll talk about that. No, that let's talk about that because that's so important. And that's in all of our, you know, memories to different degrees and different amounts of memory. But uh, yeah, I mean, it looked like cities were in terrible decline and there were a lot of uh, people who thought it was un irreversible. And also people were willing to say, well, it doesn't matter so much anymore with modern technology. We don't need cities. And of course that's had a little bit of a resurgence during the pandemic. We don't need to be close to each other, proximate to each other in person. So, I mean, yeah, what, what was the, was the decline real and, 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 and what, what are the key policy questions uh, that had to be addressed? Oh, it was completely real. Uh, you know, I was born on the island of Manhattan in 1967, and I lived there for the first 17 years. And for most of that time, it felt like the city was in a tailspin. Um, the starting point for that, and, uh, you know, pretty much all of America's older, colder cities uh, were you know, in trouble. The starting point for that was deindustrialization. I mean, if you think about New York City's past, it was an industrial city. I mean, the largest industrial cluster in the United States in the 1950s was not, you know, automobile production in Detroit. It was garment production in New York City, right? Mm. Hundreds of thousands of, you know, ordinary workers sewing, sewing garments, sewing dresses, sewing coats. And those jobs disappeared by the you know, hundreds of thousands in the 1960s and early 1970s because transportation costs changed. I mean, garments were in New York because it was the hub of this incredible transportation network. 
based originally on water, but then also supplemented with rail. And so it was a really cheap place to get fabric, a really natural place to ship the garments from, right? After World War II, container ships, highways, uh, reductions in the cost of rail, all meant that New York's one-time advantage largely vanished. And so why not move the, the dress factory down to South Carolina where the labor's a whole lot cheaper? Why not move it across the ocean where the labor's cheaper still? And so this happened place and place again uh, to America's older industrial cities because those transportation cost advantages disappeared. Then on top of this, you had the perfect storm of having social conditions which kind of went out of control. And uh, you know, the rising crime rates of the 60s and the early 70s, a city that tried to you know, spend its way out of, out of uh, problems. And you know, so New York teetered on the edge of bankruptcy by the mid 1970s. And as the Bronx burned, it really felt as if you know, New York was headed for the trash heap of history. Yeah, and what were the key policies in turning that around? So let's get to the policy so, stuff. There, there, were, there were policies. But uh, you know the the other key thing that's critical in this is that the most important thing that turned this around was the rise of finance, and it was that you know the fundamental thing is that what you know what happened was that knowledge became more important. But let's talk a little bit about policy. So well, I'll say well, a word about the finance, and more broadly, maybe about how much of all this is controllable and how much of this is just yeah things circumstances change and cities rise and fall in different geographies and and somewhat arbitrarily perhaps finance starts in one city and there are network effects which you should probably talk about and explain because that's such an important part of your of your book for it i mean how much are we talking about a kind of uh, you know uh, what, what does hayek call it uh, uh, you know an order that arises of itself there's a term for this i can't remember and uh, as opposed to you know anyone planning anything Oh, that's of course completely true, right? I mean, there, this the the origins of Wall Street are under the buttonwood tree in the in the 18th century. It's people who are investing in boats that are crossing the ocean, and you build this incredible social infrastructure. It's not at all top down. They're not policies that lead to it. It's the relationships between bankers and other investors and companies. Companies like Standard Oil move to New York partially to be near that investment community, and it becomes, in some sense, that the you know if garments are the low end of New York's labor market, this in some sense is the high end, and Really, after World War II, business services, which includes finance, became the linchpin of many of our most successful cities. You know, before the financial collapse in 2007, 42% of the payroll on the island of Manhattan was in finance and insurance. I mean, it was an unbelievably dominant industry. Uh, the, the, I think, though, there's an even larger point, though, about finance is that, you know, if you go back to 1980, when Alvin Toffer was writing The Third Way, he was you know, arguing that all the new technologies, right, the, the Zooms of their era, were largely going to make face-to-face -face interaction and the cities that enable that interaction obsolete, right? And he was looking forward to a world in which Manhattan skyscrapers would be empty and, you know, there'd be a great you know, cavernous wasteland on, on Wall Street and Midtown. And of course, for 40 years, he was completely and totally wrong. And I think the main reason that he was wrong is that what new technologies, uh, what globalization did was they radically increased the returns to being smart. And we are a social species that gets smart by being around other smart people. Right? And that's ultimately what brought people to the maelstrom of New York. And when you think about you know, the trading floors of financial service industries, there's something weird about them, right? Here, here you are with some of the wealthiest people on the planet. And instead of sitting like a university dean behind a vast desk inside a, a huge office, they're right like you there, like you there, Lit Tower. Yeah, hey, right. yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, there they are. They're right on top of each other. Right. They're yelling at each other. You know, if uh, 
you know, they're, they're getting guacamole on each other. If liars poker is to be believed, you know, they're, 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 they're in the midst of it. And why are they there? They're there because in their business, knowledge is more important than space. And that's in some sense why the city came back on, on a very high level that, you know, as you had these changes that just meant the returns to being smart were so much higher, knowledge became more important than space and people were willing to put up with the inconveniences of being in the city in order to be close to one another. Of course, there were other things that really mattered, like the reduction in crime. You think of the things that are more government caused or, or government responsive to government policies. Do you think crime was the biggest? And I'm just looking at and as we go today, do you think it's one of the biggest threats? Because you hear a lot about worries about uh, sort of a, a, a resurgence of a 70s type situation in New York Absolutely. and elsewhere. Absolutely. I think I think crime is, is almost surely the biggest risk that I see. It's the biggest, biggest risk then that was government created. Biggest risk now, at least outside of New York. I mean, New York is unusual in that it has its own income tax. Most for most cities, they don't have the freedom to set higher taxes that would scare people off. Right. So it's it's a at the state level, this is more of an issue. But at the local level, the, the city government is sufficiently constrained that it's really about deterioration in the quality of life for wealthier taxpayers. And I guess the way that I think about this is that what happened in the 70s is you had a combination of you know, people being more mobile than ever. Uh, you know, highways that had opened up the suburbs, you know, as we as we discussed earlier, container ships, uh, trucking made it easier to relocate the factories. And so you had firms and you had talented people who were inc incredibly mobile. At the same time, you had a bunch of city mayors like John Lindsay, right, who saw historic inequities and, you know, those inequities were there, but he decided it was the job of city government to end those inequities. And he decided he wanted to do it by forcing the rich to pay more. Now, the problem is the rich can just flee. And if we, you know, and they decided they wanted to deal with, you know, police brutality by just reducing the amount of policing that was going on, by reducing the amount of, of public safety that was being created. And this is something that, you know, in a world in which the rich are more mobile, as they are more mobile today, partially because of Zoom, right? If you don't, in some sense, create a city that is welcoming to them, they will just leave. Um, and that's, in some sense, what I worry most about today is a repeat of the 1970s, where you have progressive dreams, which are in many cases entirely laudable, but colliding with the reality that, you know, the the rich businesses ease, can easily get out. Let's come back a little bit to the, you know, as this, uh, assuming we do okay on, on crime, to the sort of underlying case for cities, necessity for cities, and, and virtues of cities. I mean, I do think this whole network effects thing, which is a term that's become, I guess, fashionable almost in social science and more, we used to have a more technical, perhaps economic basis, I assume. Um, but it's worth saying a word about it. I'll give you I'll just tell one very quick story. So I grew up in New York. As, uh, we actually went to the same high, same high school. So though I was 15 years ahead of you, at least. So I remember in the 60s uh, going to uh, each before each the school year when I was in grade school and middle school, uh, being taken by my sister and I going with my mother to 34th Street and 7th Avenue, uh, right near Penn Station, uh, to buy, you know, just clothes for the school year. I mean, not, nothing fancy. But, and the Mace, as I recall, Macy's, Gimbel's, and Orbach's, uh, these are names from the past, at least in the latter two cases, I guess, uh, were on the three of the four corners. I think I've got this right of 34th and Broadway or 34th and 7th. And I remember as a like 12-year-old having, you know, sort of vaguely interested, beginning to get interested in things, thinking, well, isn't this a little weird? I mean, shouldn't stores be spread out? Isn't this inconvenient? Why are they all in one place? It seems co contrary to common sense. There should be one at 34th Street and one at 72nd Street and one in you know Brooklyn, and it should be sort of convenient for people. And then I sort of, and I remember asking my 
father, maybe, and he gave me a very simple-minded, simple version of, I take it, what is a version of, right, of, of the kind of virtues of uh, congestion or of, you know, similar businesses being in the same place and, and stuff. But I mean, to address that, it's one of those striking things about cities, all the, you know, a lot of there are these neighborhoods that have all the same thing in one place. And you'd think it'd be more convenient as a retail matter that they'd be spread out. So there are many things that are interesting in that, in that example. So one of the starting points for that is that 34th street is at the heart of the, you know, of the garment district. So you're in the place where the garment district essentially reformed at the start of the 20th century, and it reformed around Penn Station. So Penn Station was the transportation technology that enabled the stuff to get in and the stuff to get out, and sort of the garment district formed formed around that. From there, it becomes fairly natural for clothes that specialize in clothing to be near the garment district. So you have one network effect, which is the upward linkage from the stores to uh, to their customers. But there's more there, which is if you're going to attract the, the Crystal family to do their school shopping, right, it's convenient for all three stores to be nearby because maybe you're going to come down and you're not going to like what Macy's has. Right. And, you know, as to remind us of that famous, you know, miracle on 34th Street, right, the, the, where the, the real Santa Claus in the, in the show tells the family that, you know, you should go to Gimbel's to buy this, right? Even if Macy's isn't always doing that, they have the capacity to do that or you have the capacity to do it yourself. And so having that cluster there makes it easier for people to know that that's a, a destination where you go to search for clothing. And even more famous example that's still present in New York is Diamonds on uh, 47th Street between 5th and 6th, where there is an unbelievable cluster of diamond merchants who are there, who serve partially the role of having a bunch of institutions that they take advantage of, like the, the Gem Institute that then certifies your, your diamonds after you buy it. But it's also so that, you know, couples who are looking for engagement rings have lots of options and they know this is the destination that they want to go to. And these things sort of sprung up spontaneously. Yeah, and it reminds me of the term is spontaneous order in Hayek. And I mean, it wasn't the government didn't decide, let's have a garment district at, uh, in, in, in the 30s or jewelry, jewelry street at 47th Street or whatever. So absolutely. I, I don't I don't know whether or not there's any government involved in, in jewels. I'm uh, the, the garment industry. There are some large developers who play a role in being sort of a first mover who put down a lot of space for garments in the 1920s. So there's a guy who I talk about in Triumph called A.E. Lefcourt, who it turns out built more skyscrapers than any other New Yorker did in the 1920s. And he comes out of the garment industry. He's, a, he's a, like a cloak manufacturer who starts with nothing and then, then starts building these factories for the garment industry. And he sort of begins the, the move to create the, the new garment, the new garment district anchored around Penn Station. And so, and is, and the same is true, I guess, of theater and so forth, right? I mean, they're just these incredible economies, of, not of scale, but of, I don't know what, of compression or something of being near each other, right? So if actors want jobs, you can't always get one in one play, but you're going to move to the city that has a potential 10 plays and et cetera. And tourists yep, want to come absolutely. watch plays, they'll come to one city. Yep. Uh, we call these agglomeration economies, the benefits of being around uh, around other other businesses, sometimes like businesses and sometimes sometimes businesses that are either suppliers or customers. And this is a good thing. I mean, that is to say, uh, this is not just a, one could say, well, this is just something that's developed, but it's not. I mean, is this good economically? Is it, it does it increase growth? Does it attract? I mean, is it something we should welcome or something we should push back against? Why should why should five blocks in New York get all the theater and most of the theater in the U.S., you know? This is I don't I don't really want to descend into lingo, into the, the econ lingo. But okay. um, these agglomerations are rife with what we call externalities, which means that, you know, private market actors don't necessarily make the right decision for society as a whole. 
What that means is you can, in fact, have too much concentration, meaning that it would be better if you, you know, if you put some some theater somewhere else. But, you know, the first theater goer isn't going to first theater isn't going to want to detach or you can have under concentration because you, you know, the, the theater that w would move from the Upper East Side to Broadway isn't internalizing all the benefits that that theater would bring to the other theaters. The problem is very rarely we can guess pretty well that the private market won't get it right, but we're very rarely sure in which direction it's gotten it wrong. So it's a similar question at a very large level, which, you know, uh, there are externalities from high human capital people living in particular locations. But does that mean I should want to drag more skilled people from West Virginia to Silicon Valley? or stop skilled people from moving from West Virginia to Silicon Valley, I can't tell you the answer to that. And at least for me, I've always said that that's another good reason why we probably want a federal government that's spatially neutral, that doesn't actually play favorites with one with one area, doesn't actually try to create these clusters, but doesn't try to stand in their way either. I think it's yet another case for you know modesty in terms of what we think the federal government should try to do. But actually, historically, these cities and these agglomerations, whether it's New York City or Silicon Valley, do correlate, it seems to me, in a very simple-minded way with innovation and uh, growth, attracting immigrants, which I think, I assume you'd agree, would be generally a good thing for economic growth as well. So say, say a word about that. I mean, uh, uh, no, I think cities have been, uh, you know, uh, uh, an unbelievably key portion of our of our economic success as a country. And it's sort of an oddity as Americans, we tend to think of ourselves as sort of rural frontiersmen often, even though we are, you know, most of us are firmly embedded in uh, metropolitan economies. Um, and, you know, those, those economies have played a huge role in terms of making America productive. Um, and even, you know, if you think about the, the farmers of the Midwest who were, you know, so much a part of our wealth in the 19th and the early 20th century, right? They benefited a lot from the fact that Cyrus McCormick moved from Virginia to Chicago to set up his, you know, Reaper business, right? And he was right in the middle of middle of the, the city. He was using his, you know, sending out his scouts throughout all the cities in the Midwest to see what his competitors were doing and constantly upgrading his, his Reaper. And this is partially what made us a you know, highly mechanized, highly productive farm economy was that we had cities which could then strengthen those farms. That continues to be true today, that our, our cities have often been the wellspring of you know, new ideas, new innovations. Um, and uh, that, that is very much sort of part of our world. Going back historically, it's even more obvious. I mean, you, you see over and over again these moments of human brilliance, whether or not it's Athens in the 5th century BC or Florence in the 15th century, where connections between one innovator and another. You can watch the chain of ideas as, you know, it moves from one person to the next. You know, Brunelleschi figures out the basic mathematics of making two-dimensional areas seem three-dimensional. Right. He passes that along to his traveling companion, Donatello, right? Another, another Florentine who puts it in low relief sculpture. Uh, he passes it along to Masaccio, puts on the wall of the Brancacci Chapel, that amazing picture of, of St. Peter finding a silver coin in the belly of a fish. He passes it along to that less than saintly monk, Fra Filippo Lippi, passes it along to Botticelli and so forth. A chain of urban brilliance that still lights up our world, right? This is what cities do that's really important. They enable us to create amazing stuff by leveraging the brilliance of others. I mean, our ability to be intellectual magpies, to borrow or steal ideas from people around us is has been central to human human success over the last 3000 years. And you're a. Um, yeah, so let's talk about the resistance to cities. I mean, Jefferson was worried about what it would do to the civic virtues and not entirely unreasonable, I suppose, though. I, well, anyway, I'm more on the Hamilton side of this fight, but I mean, it, it, it's a strain in America. 
probably a strain, particularly among conservatives. Um, and you're, I think, generally thought to be on the center center right of, of things. You're a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute. I mean, how, what would you say? Do you find this? I mean, do you find the conservatives say, wait a second, what are you praising cities for? We're sort of pro-rural, pro-suburban and sort of think cities are this either corrupt and or, you know, it's bloated, inefficient governments and a bunch of decaying businesses propped up by subsidies. And why are you defending cities? I mean, how much do you find as a political matter? Conservatives are open to this argument about cities. And then does it and does it matter? I mean, you want a neutral playing field. You don't want to necessarily yeah. the government to tilt the playing field. But right. So, you know, it's it's political poison, but I, I want drivers to pay for their sub for their highways, right? I, I want I want users to pay for their infrastructure. That's true of JFK Airport, but it's also true of highways. So, um, you know, I, I don't want a tax policy that, you know, artificially subsidizes mortgages because mortgages are, are associated with, uh, you know, with, with living in suburbs more than cities. But also, I, I just don't want it to have the government sit there and, you know, encourage ordinary Americans to bet on the vicissitudes of the housing market. I don't think that's great policy, great policy either. So I think when it gets down to individual policies, it's easier to connect with conservatives. I mean, that's that's the view that our government should you know, be quite sparing with its social engineering. That's, you know, that's that's pretty easy. And I will say my own sort of, you know, center rightness, uh, it has its you know, origins in watching the, the markets and the businesses of, of Manhattan. Right. I mean, my my mom worked for Mobile Oil, which was located on, you know, 42nd Street between Third and, and Lex in, in New York. Uh, that certainly didn't seem like a left wing organization to me. Uh, and, you know, it, it seemed like one that, you know, we, we having having some degree of filial affinity for it. Right. Naturally made me sort of, you know, a little wary of Jimmy Carter's, you know, anti anti oil company stuff. So I think that had some role to it. There is a fundamental problem, though, which is that big cities do actually require more government than uh, you know, rural areas do, right? There are these externalities, and we've been talking about the, the good ones, the network effects that, you know, or the, the ideas hopping from, from urban genius to urban genius, but there also are bad ones. I mean, most obviously in today's world, it's this, the spread of disease uh, from person to person. And, um, you know, there, there's, you know, we, we, I mentioned fifth century Athens earlier, but in some sense, the golden age of Athens was permanently derailed by the plague that came to that city in 430 BC. Right. I mean, it's it's a that, that was partially because of the high density, high density made it even denser because of Pericles' strategy of bringing in all the Athenians behind the walls to protect them from the Spartan hoplites. But, um, you know, cities are always vulnerable to disease. They, you know, have problems with traffic congestion, which needs some degree of, of moderation. They they need dealing with the hygienic aspects of waste and, and sewers. Um, one of in our new book, uh, we sort of focus a lot in the second chapter on a uh, third chapter on uh, the 19th century fight to make cities livable. And the cities at the start of the 19th century were extraordinarily vulnerable to those pandemics that spread across the world in that earlier age, the yellow fever, cholera. Um, and you know, over the course of the 19th century, urbanites came together and they expanded government around clean water, around sewers. And that's actually a kind of government that I'm okay with. Uh, I, I, you know, this was sensible, by and large, user fee funded, but not always. Um, and it was an amazing act. In some sense, it's a moment where governments actually started to save lives instead of taking them. I mean, you know, the, most of, of governments prior to 1800 were really just in the business of killing. I mean, I know we we love the fact that Frederick the Great had these erudite uh, correspondences with Voltaire, but look, his main business was stealing Silesia from Maria Theresa. Uh, his main business was fighting. So, um, you know, but in the 19th century, cities actually expanded their governments enormously. It was mostly about health. And so cities do need more government. And yet, of course, as we know, uh, 
those governments, as they expand, we see their failings pretty, pretty clearly. And so uh, I think that's part of what creates that juxtaposition that between, you know, low density and republicanism, at least, uh, you know, which gives it some sort of natural roots. Yeah, but it is important to make the point about there are real public goods and real externalities that aren't captured by individual players making decisions yeah. like wastewater or something and which presumably have to be dealt with collectively, which means which means government. I mean, right now, U.S. policy, I mean, net net, so to speak, is federal policy. What are the biggest things that either help cities or hurt cities? I mean, it's tilted. I kind of got the impression from what you were saying a minute ago that you, some of the biggest policies are tilted towards the suburbs, basically. Uh, so I would have I would have been more comfortable with that five years ago uh, where where I was, you know, the the it's uh, federal highway aid and uh, the home mortgage interest deduction. Which are, which are, I think of as the two big ones. Um, we have had a whole bunch of uh, spending for urban transit systems during uh, the COVID COVID response, uh, for for good or ill. Um, the um, if we end up in that business permanently, then that will slightly levy le- slightly level in the playing field. I will just say my own preference is that the users, by and large, pay for both of those things rather than having cross subsidies of, of urban infrastructure and cross subsidies of, of rural infrastructure. The only exception of that is, you know, I'm, I'm OK with some degree of modest support for buses that particularly aid poor people. I think that's a that's a quite defensive thing because it's a, you know, a critical ingredient in their employment and buses are cheap. They'd be a lot cheaper, too, if we got rid of the Buy American requirements that are often uh, inflict uh, high costs on our urban uh, transit systems. The biggest problem with our cities, of course, is not any federal policy. It's actually the schools. So mm. that's, a, that's a statement of, um, and it's not, it's the hardest one to fix. I'm not at all sure of how to fix it. Uh, but the fact that so many parents think they need to suburbanize to get decent schools for their kids, that's just an incredible tax on urban life. Yeah, that's such a good point. It's a kind of an obvious point. I mean, in a way, right? I mean, here I'm sitting here in Northern Virginia, where we moved, yeah, basically because you know, they had very good public school. I mean, there are other nice things about living here, but very good public schools and some other amenities. But the schools dwarf everything else in importance, yeah. and we weren't confident of that, and it wouldn't have been confident of that when we moved down here in DC. So yeah, I mean, it, it is one sort of takes it for granted as the thing that well, yes, you go to the suburbs to get the good public schools, whether it's Westchester or Sugar Heights or, or Maryland or Virginia. But of course, why is that the case? It needn't be the case. There's no intrinsic law about that. You know? I never heard of a single Frenchman who thought they needed to leave, needed to leave Paris to get better schools for their kids, right? right. It, just doesn't, it just doesn't happen. So. But so real education reform, whatever exactly that would be, and you know, would really make a difference, you think, in other words, in terms of... I think so. I think I think either if you went to a sort of just more widespread, you know, voucher system where sort of there's competition everywhere and, you know, you can, you don't, where you live doesn't determine the act, the quality of the school system that you go to, or I don't believe America could pull this off, but if we were going to be French and de Registe and actually like ensure, you know, it's Tuesday at 4 p.m., I know what every third grader is being taught everywhere in France, right? Either direction would level the playing field. It's just our... The, Traditions of American local schooling mean that it's, you know, we have a particular problem uh, in terms of our urban schools. And I suppose the way I'm just thinking about the way our immigration happened, cities were the magnets for immigrants. Maybe that's the case in most of human history, but immigrants come in mostly in the uh, poorer. And so cities are the, you know, raucous, uneducated immigrants and their kids who don't know English very well flooding the public schools. And if you're a middle or upper middle class, non-immigrant who, you know, why, fine, that's good that 
the city should help those kids, but you know what, I'll just go to school here in a slightly, you know, more sedate and uh, less challenging environment in the suburbs. Right. And that must have something I mean, that's sort of historical. Is that an accident that cities are so much the magnets for immigrants or am I overstating yeah. it or, or. No, you, you're, you are, you're, you're correct. And I, I want to just add to it. Cities also attract poor people because of their public transportation technologies, right? That in fact, you don't have to own a car for every adult which is unfortunately what you actually need to have mobility in much of America's suburbs to get around. And so if, whether or not you're a poor immigrant or just a poor family, like cities enable you to access jobs without owning, uh, owning the automobiles. So that's another force which pulls poor people into cities. Or put conversely, rich people move to the suburbs first because they could afford the cars that were required to uh, make them accessible. And so if cities are going to disproportionately attract poor people, then that's going to create challenges for the school system that need to be, you know, that in some cases will just lead the, lead the rich to, to exit. And that's, that's what certainly has happened sometimes. I was struck in like one of the books you, you, you're somewhat critical of Jane Jacobs, who I read as a, I don't know, high school, early college. And we sort of liked, I think I was supposed to like that. You know, we kind of, there was a left, right agreement that Jane Jacobs was criticism of Robert Moses and all this. And, and for me, as a more conservative type, it fit into a certain kind of, again, critique of uh, the fatal conceit of Robert Moses thinking he could plan everything. But you're not such a bit, say a word about what Jane Jacobs argued, maybe it's a very famous book. I'm not sure it is as famous anymore. It was sort of a big deal when I was in college, but uh, it's called The Life and Death of America. Of American American cities. Cities. The Economy of Cities is all also good and also influenced me enormously. A Life and Death of Great American Cities is in many ways a great book, right? Most ways, in fact, it is a great book. It this is, is from what, the early 60s? I think 61, I think. Yeah, I think it's, that's right. Um, uh, its description of, you know, the ballet of street life is extraordinary. It's, you know, understanding of what's great about neighborhoods like Greenwich Village is fantastic. Um, her, you know, ability to understand the Corbusier inspired public housing projects. The 1950s were headed for disaster. It was great, uh, partially because you know they just didn't build on a human on a human scale. They were they were you know guilty of one of the two great sins of city building, which is monumentalism, building for the sake of the structures, not realizing that the real city isn't made of concrete; it's human flesh. And unless the buildings wrap around humanity's needs, they're completely useless. And, and Jane Jacobs was absolutely peerless on on that stuff. Where she erred. Okay, and it's like a it's like a thing which, as an economist, you know, it seems obvious, but as non economist, maybe it doesn't. Was she was in fact guilty of the other great sin, which is nimbyism, not my backyardism. And <laughs> the, the the reason for that, and you know, she has a chapter which is you know the chapter that I pick on in, in Triumph, is um, why cities need old buildings, and she looks at you know the the compares old buildings and new buildings, notice that old buildings are cheap and new buildings are expensive, which leads her to conclude that no one should replace old buildings with new buildings. And then she became this sort of advocate of the Greenwich Village Historic Preservation District, which, you know, basically froze all development in Greenwich Village in amber. Now, the problem with that is with that reasoning, of course, is that there's no repealing the laws of supply and demand. And if you have heavy demand for a neighborhood like Greenwich Village and you say, we're not going to build anything, that's not a recipe for affordability. That's a recipe for $8 million townhouses uh, because you've essentially made it impossible for the market to react. And the, you know, the new buildings may be slightly more expensive, but you make the old buildings cheaper if you put up a, you know, a 50-story building in the neighborhood to supply more units. Uh, and while she is certainly right that Greenwich Village is wonderful space, you know, I grew up in a much taller building than those than those buildings. I, I don't think our street life around, you know, the 69th Street and first was so bad. Uh, and, uh, you know, that that also works. And 
I think, you know, using any form of public regulation to say that there's only one way to build a city just feels like it's a mistake to me. And while she was right that her way of her, her neighborhoods are great, but there are lots of other ways to have great neighborhoods and some of them can be a lot denser. And I guess it must have caught on. It must have fit in with the uh, anger, maybe justified, I suspect, of the destruction of Penn Station and, you know, the total lack of recognition of historical landmarks we may have gone too much the other direction on that. I don't know. But I take it your form of defer to markets and supply and demand doesn't preclude, you know, a certain amount of the protecting of great buildings and so forth. My father was an, it was an architectural historian. You know, uh, you know I, I, I believe that there are many buildings that are as precious to humanity as, you know, the works of Masaccio and, and uh, uh, Botticelli. I just don't think that every glazed brick building in the Upper East Side of Manhattan is vital to preserve, right? right. I, think, I think we need to like have some serious thoughts about what are the costs and benefits here. Um, and we shouldn't act as if this is a free lunch that we get to both preserve architectural heritage and maintain affordability. I think the proposal that I, I threw out was, you know, let's just let's just have some fixed set of buildings that we're going to protect those buildings and maybe a few other extra neighborhoods. And let's be much more limited about saying a whole, you know, vast neighborhood like the Upper East Side of New York is going to be part of a, of a historic preservation district. And right? is that I mean, the case want, now? There, is that what they're talking about? There, there are huge amounts of, of yeah, there is a, there is an Upper East Side historic preservation district. There, there Just are, those normal a, apartment buildings on Park Avenue yeah, or yeah. Fifth Avenue. Yeah. Absolutely. Perfectly nice there, buildings, there, there, yeah. There's a, there's a ton of ordinary stuff that is that is preserved, not just in New York. Um, and it becomes harder in a city like Bruges, where sort of it fits together as, you know, an ancient historical thing. So I'm really OK with like leaving Bruges uh, intact. Paris, probably we want to preserve larger areas, but we, it probably still would be good to have more, you know, escape valves. Uh, I mean, La Défense has proven to be one, but I, I'm OK a slightly more tall building closer to the city center, but it's a balance. I mean, and I'm certainly not against historic preservation in any sense. It's just, it's just, we need to recognize that there are costs to it. I suppose we've been very New York centric here as is appropriate for the two of us in this conversation, but we should say a word about the massive growth of the Sunbelt cities, which I don't know if people really expected that 30 or 40 years ago. I think people might've expected movement to that, to the Sunbelt. I don't know if they really expected the cities to become so big and city-like for all the sprawl. But anyway, say a word about that. I mean, I guess because I was thinking about your historic preservation, there can be cities that have historic preservation and others that don't, right? And right. that's also in a big country, probably a good thing to have a certain amount and let New York be New York and let Houston be Houston. But say a word about the general, what about these, is, is what about, you know, the Houstons and Atlantis of the world? Okay, so first let's, let's put two facts on the table. One of which is there is no variable that I know of that better predicts metropolitan area growth over the course of the last 120 years than January temperature. January temperature is the biggest variable. Now, some part of that is just Americans liking warmer weather. And I will say as someone who's lived in New England for the last 30 years, it sh I think it shows an awful lack of character. But, yeah. uh, you know, de is disputandum, right? You know, there's no argue with taste. They, they, they are what they are. As an economist, I, yeah, you know, I'm bound to respect it. I respect them. But uh, on top of that, um, there, there are other public policies that go along with this. So if we think about the South in 1950, not California, the South in 1950 is still, you know, the Jim Crow South. And, you know, we, if you go back and watch In the Heat of the Night, right, that, that marvelous movie uh, uh, with Sidney Poitier from um, the 60s, right, this is a movie about a Northern industrialist building, I think it's a textile plant in uh, Mississippi, right? And, you know, all sorts of bad things ensue, which, uh, you know, suggests some of the things that might have been restricting development of the South. Now, 
over the past 70 years, the South has gone from being relatively anti-business to being relatively pro-business, right? I mean, it's the place of right-to-work state. It's the places that have, and the work of Tom Holmes at the University of Minnesota uh, looks at counties on different sides of state lines where you have right-to-work borders and shows huge added industrial growth after 1947 in those counties, those states that have been pro-business. Uh, the the, the other right thing- to work being a, a very important part of pro-business as opposed uh, to taxes hard. or all the other stuff. Okay, so we've got 50 states. Yeah. All of them have a cocktail of policies. Right. It's very hard to say that it's right to work versus lower taxes versus something else, right? It's very, we know that all of these things tend to go together, but it's very hard to you know parse out which is, which is the most uh, valuable. Um, we also have pro-housing policies, right? You don't understand why Atlanta, Dallas, Houston, Phoenix have added so many units since the last 30 years without understanding that they make it incredibly easy to mass produce housing. And that's, that's sort of part of the magic. Um, the second fact is that if anything, that Sunbelt trend has been magnified over the last two years. So partially because people like being outside, partially because uh, probably the more relaxed attitude towards COVID has appealed to, to many people. It's when I look at the date over the, the 2019 to 2021 period, it feels like it's, you know, the past 40 years on steroids. Mm -hmm. uh, we actually, in the, the paperback edition of Survival that's coming out this, this fall, we actually have a list of ranking the 50 metropolitan areas that, you know, and how they fared over COVID. 17 out of the top 25 are in the Sun Belt with Austin, Texas, you know, leading, leading the pack. And so places like Austin that are both relatively pro-business and really skilled, those are, you know, those, those are the, the, the real winners. And Atlanta falls in that category as well. They also are pretty urban. I mean, it's not as if these are not, you know, real metropolitan areas with really dense cores that have real network effects that going on in them. Uh, even if, even if, you know, your average Houstonian may think of themselves as being a cattle rancher, they really are living in a, one of the world's great metropolitan areas, great urban areas. Yeah, it's interesting about Austin and Atlanta. I mean, it's sort of like the ideal common thing is maybe to be a bluish city in a red state with pro-business policies and, and affordable and easy housing. But if if you're the type of person who wants more of a culturally left, let's just say, experience and environment, you get that too, right? I, I Austin, I think, is the, you're, especially if you're a university town. That's one of the things that I never would have predicted that being a university turn, town, am I wrong about this though? Turns out to be kind of a big plus in, in economic development. Absolutely, for, for both growth and wages. Um, you know, Enrico Moretti of Berkeley, uh, he, he pioneered the use of, of land-grant colleges prior to 1940 to sort of look at uh, the impact of having skilled workers, and they're very predictive of of success. Having having uh, uh, a land grant college prior to 1940, it's you know it, it's directly skilled workers, um, but it's also after the Bayh Dole Act of 1980 makes it possible to license to commercially license uh, research that was funded with federal dollars. You have an explosion of businesses around uh, around university towns in related in industries that are related to their traditional research expertise. That's from work of Naomi Hausman. That's so interesting because, you know, I, I, I was when I actually I don't know, I'm trying to remember when I was in high school in Ann Arbor, Madison, we thought they were kind of fun places because they were college towns and they were if you're on the left, they were lefty places. I don't know that one thought they were particularly going to be the hubs of any great new businesses. It's interesting if that legislation, which I had never really thought about for a second, made a difference. I mean, it's a good case study, right? And how the unanticipated consequences, I don't know, well, maybe they were anticipated. I don't know, but I don't imagine they really were when they thought, well, people should get a little more of the benefits of this, of this research. And that it leads to, you know, the MIT area, which was a dump certainly when, you know, uh, becoming a huge boom area, 
I mean, this wasn't urban. I guess what I'm trying to say is this wasn't an act of urban policy. It was an act of I don't know what it was of, of, of you know, letting people well, yes, monetize their research. Right. So, yeah, I, I think they, there was no question that they thought of it as economic policy as well. I think they thought that it was going to help American growth. Right. I don't think anyone thought about, like, the urban implications of this. Right. All part of, I mean, uh, and you're right. I mean, MIT is Boston's land grant college. So it's a, it's the. Classic. It's the classic example. And there's no question, you know, it has been you know, an economic engine for this region in a big, big way. Yeah, it's interesting. And say we're immigration, just while we're on sort of my favorite uh, hobby horses of our foolish policies, uh, from the point of view of what, what you study, I mean, I take it the cities could use and welcome lots more immigrants of, well, I will put you tell me, and, and should they be all, you know, the PhDs who are being sent back, or could they also be people who want to work hard and start off as uh, in restaurants? Uh, I, look, I think immigrants are good for cities and cities are good for immigrants. I, I think both of these things are true. They're traditional ports of entry into the U.S. Urban services benefit from having uh, immigrants who, you know, may be working, but they may end up being entrepreneurs in, you know, ethnic products. I mean, that's also a thing which makes cities rich is having a, having a great uh, you know, cultural landscape, a kaleidoscope of different of different cuisines in, in, in them. Um, so I think having a more permissive uh, immigration policy would be fantastic. And I agree with you. It's it's both at the top end of the skill distribution, but I would do a lot more at the low end as well. Um, uh, the, you know, and I also just, you know, I, I am just keenly aware of the incredible privilege of being an American, and just some part of me makes me uncomfortable when I shave my face in the mirror of thinking that I really want to fundamentally deny that privilege to another person. Right? I mean, my father came to came to New York in '64 uh, from Germany, and you know, he it, this was in, I wouldn't exist if if we didn't allow an immigrants. Right. No, that's right. It's one, and of course, life's unfair, and some people don't get to grow up as Americans. But if those who really want to come here and go through the hoops properly to do so, and are willing to work hard, it to seem like more than would on, on the whole be better than fewer. And, and certainly now we do have, don't you think it, it is probably hurting uh, just in terms of services, the, the uh, lack of la- well, the labor, labor shortage, which really is an immigrant shortage to a surprising degree. I think people haven't really focused on five years of no immigration, partly because of policies and partly because of COVID makes a big dent, right? It's, you really see it in the leisure and hospitality data. Right over the last two years, we've had you know a, a we had first a huge decline in employment, then a then a you know a modest comeback, and wages are way up in leisure and hospitality, which tells you that there was a, a you know we have a real labor supply shortage in this area, and that's in blue states in particular, right? In red states, actually, there's been less of that. In general, there's been less of a great resignation in red states than in blue states, um, and you know immigrants are tend to be disproportionately in in you know in those industries in blue state cities like New York. Since you're an actual real economist, and I mean, in addition to being a specialist in these particular areas, since you mentioned the Great Resignation, I can't resist asking you about that since everyone talks about it. I mean, what what's your take on this sort of the whole question of what is that really about? Is it temporary? Is it bad? Is it good? Actually, you know, why should people who are 62 years old go back to work for three more years? You know, they may not ever go back to work. Um, I think of there has been two phenomena which are often merged together. Um, one of which is just the fact that. People didn't want to work because of, of COVID fears in many cases. That's probably one of the reasons why the blue state where COVID fears were much greater than in, in red states. Um, and also there was a lot of federal money slashing around the system that you know, meant that you meant that people weren't, you know, weren't broke. Um, those feel like largely temporary factors. That doesn't mean that the 62-year-old is necessarily going to go back to work, but it does mean that you know, most of the 35-year-olds are. 
Um, but I, I want to put this in a sort of larger 55-year perspective, right? So when I was born, only 5% of prime-aged males were jobless. And of course, prime age is the census definition, which is 25 to 54, which as a 55-year-old, I take great offense at. But yeah, that's uh, 5% right. <laughs> uh, were, were uh, jobless. Over the past decade, more than 15% have prime age men have been, have been jobless, right? That's, that's a tripling. And um, it's not something that's spatially neutral. It's actually not a particular urban phenomenon. In fact, cities are relatively good at providing jobs for less skilled uh, Americans, particularly in industries like leisure and hospitality. Um, it's particularly a phenomenon of, of America's eastern heartland, sort of a belt of states that begin down in Louisiana, Mississippi, run up through Appalachia, and ends up in the cities of the Rust Belt. I tend to think that long-term joblessness is much, much worse than being, you know, working and, and earning lower wages. Uh, I think there's good data that backs that up. If you look at the happiness data, if you look at suicide data, right, long-term joblessness, uh, especially for men, is associated with really bad outcomes. And I, I think this is, in some sense, prior to COVID, I was very clear that I thought that this was America's largest unsolved uh, social problem. Wow. And that has not gone away because of COVID. And typically what happens is you have a an increase in joblessness during a downturn, and then, you know, you, you have a partial comeback during the during the recovery. Um, and I think this is something that we should be worried a lot about is, is how to make sure that more of our adults are able to get the things that you get from work, which are, you know, not just earning a paycheck, but social connections and a sense of purpose. And all the UBI in the world, all the universal basic income in the world will do nothing to give people a sense of purpose and nothing to give them a, a sense of social connection that you get from a job. And I understand there are a lot of tech entrepreneurs who like have a story about how their uncle gave them a chunk of money and that gave them the freedom to start their startup and now they're worth three and a half billion dollars. That's like two guys, okay? The normal, normal human beings, when you give them extra money, as we learned from the negative income tax experiments in the 1970s, work less. And that typically means they watch more television unless they're younger, in which case they do more gaming. So, you know, uh, those are, this is not a, a recipe for economic dynamism. And it does feel like it's a recipe for just exacerbating this problem of, you know, millions of Americans who are detached from the workplace, detached from other human beings, living lives of misery. I, mean, I guess the case for work is a mini version of the case for cities, right? That there are these sort of, as it were, positive externalities, both for the individuals themselves in terms of family life and self-respect and opportunities to, to learn new things, and also for the surrounding areas, right? I mean, that it's not just a matter of you could, I'm making, you know, plausibly through UBI replicate in some macroeconomic way, right. you know, you could, you could, they could continue to buy food and have medical care and so forth. Yeah. Most of us from working bring benefits to other people that are not entirely monetized for ourselves. Right. So that's, that's one element to it. We also bring benefits because we pay taxes and we don't, you know, consume government, consume public benefits. There's even the thing that roughly about 35% of long-term jobless men live, live on their parents' couches, live with their parents. Uh, and so in some sense, the, the parents, most of those parents did not get to be consulted when that person quit their job. And so, you know, in some sense, you're helping the parents out as well by being pro-work. Yeah, that's good for that. The um, Let's talk about housing policy as we kind of last 10, 15 minutes here, since that seems to be one of the key, uh, you've measured crime and education. Those seem like very big policies, but on the more sort of econo strictly economic side, I guess, is, housing policy maybe is the biggest, I don't know question mark over cities or the and, and this differentiation differentiator between cities and NIMBY and YIMBY. And it's become a pretty live issue just in the last I don't know, few years. I feel like it It was sort of a little bit obscure a few a decade ago when, uh, you know, when we had a financial crisis and everyone was thinking much more about, you know, I don't know, should the Fed keep zero interest rate policies forever? But 
So say, say just, I mean, how bad, I mean, how damaging, if they are damaging our economic policies, what's the, our housing policies, what, what's sort of the core mistake, if there is one, uh, are some cities much better than others, et cetera? So historically, Americans have moved to places that are more productive. Historically, that has been enabled by the fact that you know, no one said that you couldn't build a log cabin in Iowa in 1880 uh, or put up whatever house you were going to put up there or, you know, stopped you from moving to Los Angeles in 1910. Uh, uh, typically, we have made it very easy for people to build housing in productive areas and Americans have moved to places that are more economically dynamic. Over the last 75 years, uh, maybe even 100 years, if you want to date it back to, to the single use zoning of the 1920s, so-called Euclidean zoning, we've made it easier and easier for neighborhoods and cities to say no to new housing. And what wealthy people, what homeowners, what poor people often want to do then is to say no to change. They want to say no to neighborhood change. I think there's both some economic logic to this in the sense that um, to an average homeowner, right? Housing affordability isn't something to be wished for. Housing affordability means their most valuable asset just got less valuable. So why would you possibly want more affordable housing? Why would you possibly want to expand the housing supply? There's also just the inconvenience of going through nearby construction, right? So you don't like that either. So you've got two things which mean that you don't want to have building. Plus there's probably less rational aspects, which are, I just fear the change, right? There's lots of evidence to suggest that human beings, you know, are, are, you know, think that something bad is going to happen and, you know, then their life is going to be incomparably worse. And yet we are a very adaptive species. And at the end of the day, like when you put up the new apartment complex at the end of the street, we're still fine. And it didn't really make much of a difference in our lives. And I think both things are going on. And what has happened in community after community, starting typically in the more educated places, uh, Jane Jacobs was an example of this. And it started off typically saying no to public projects. Um, so the, the story is often told around Washington Square Park in, in New York. In fact, this appeared in Mrs. Maisel that has Jane Jacobs uh, objecting to change in Washington Square Park. Uh, and yet she was actually not the central player in, in that. She was actually, that's where she got started. And then gradually it moved on from blocking, running a, an expressway through Washington Square Park to uh, you know, blocking all forms of neighborhood change, like in the historic preservation districts. And this, this moved into the suburbs. In cities, it's historic preservation that's the ideology of nimbyism. In the suburbs, it's some alleged form of environmentalism. So think about the Save the Bay Foundation, which you know, grew up around uh, San Francisco in the 1960s, right? They you know, are very much against things which would imperil the local environment. Now, the problem with that from a pure environmental perspective is you, know, you need to think about the global environment as well as the local environment. And it turns out that building in greater San Francisco is one of the greenest things you could do in America from a global you know, carbon emissions thing, because this is an area with very moderate weather. So you need to heat very little and cool very little. And you have lots of access to public transportation. So if, you know, environmentalists in San Francisco really want to do good things for the environment, they should be saying, you know, don't develop in Las Vegas, develop here. We're going to fast track all the high rise buildings you want to you want to make. And yet, of course, that that doesn't happen. And so what this means is that these sort of highly educated, highly successful hubs like San Francisco, like Silicon Valley, like Los Angeles, like New York, have been the places where people figured out first how to stop new construction. And so you've frozen their housing supplies in Amber, you know, Middlesex County, where I am in Massachusetts is another example. And so people can't afford to move in when these places become more productive. And this has led to an America that's much less dynamic, an America that's much less efficient, because we've created these housing frictions that make it sort of impossible to adjust to changing economic circumstances.
I suppose it's a political matter. How does one overcome that? I mean, one would have to have either states come in and impose knockdown restrictions at the local level or sort of localities would have to decide that it's ultimately hurting them. I, I don't know. Localities will never decide. There's no there's no you know, you can never get to a case in which like the, you'll get particularly suburban homeowners communities to, to agree to lots of extra development. Even if you think that there's some sort of a bargain here where the developers could agree to give enough money to all the existing homeowners, I just can't see a way in which American democracy is, is rigged up to, to manage a deal of that complexity. The natural way to change is at the state legislature level. Um, and uh, there are states can either take away zoning power from localities. So, for example, Chapter 40B in Massachusetts provides a get out of jail free card for developers if the community basically has no affordable housing and if the if the builder wants to build with enough affordable units. So that around, that creates a, a way around. You also can incentivize localities to create more housing with, um, you know, I was I was quite keen on trying to bid into the uh, the infrastructure bill, uh, the idea that we're not going to spend infrastructure dollars on places that can't build to take advantage of that infrastructure. That's that's I, I thought there was some you know claim that there was going to be a legal problem with that. I can't see what legal system would say that, you know, we're not going to embed cost benefit analysis in our infrastructure and you get more bang for your buck with infrastructure if you're in your place that allows building. It just makes more sense if you're building in Texas and you know they're going to be able to build a whole, you know, new community around it. You're going to get a lot more for this infrastructure than you will if you build it in San Francisco. I mean, I suppose ultimately markets should take care of this in some way because the place that's cleverly keeping everyone out at some point becomes, I don't know, not so desirable because it doesn't have the most modern amenities. I'm trying to think why, you know, there are some ways in which, and businesses move away because they can't attract workers because it's too expensive. And suddenly Silicon, but people have been saying this for a long time and Silicon Valley is still Silicon Valley. And maybe some businesses aren't, well, Austin, I mean, I suppose there are some examples where the market is gradually has an effect of punishing this kind of behavior it does it doesn't it doesn't actually you know the, the thing is before before silicon valley really starts to, to suffer it it gets cheaper so it hasn't yet but by, by right, if it's starting to suffer it gets cheaper and then then you know people can afford living again the way that america has handled this for most of the last 50 years is you know people have gone to texas we've had escape valves as you say so you know that's that's and that's in some sense ease the pressure um that of course does not you know from a national perspective, having building in or businesses growing in places that are easy to build in rather than places that are, you know, currently productive, that doesn't create, create costs, right? It's, it's, we are better off if we locate in the place that is, you know, currently most productive in lots of ways. But you're right, the, the less regulated parts of America have been the escape valve. And it's a good thing we have that escape valve. And I suppose, as you say, it might be ultimately slightly less, more, more efficient in a way to be building where there's already the employed, the good workforce. But you could argue from a national point of view, it doesn't, it's not such a bad thing to have the exit to places that have heretofore been underdeveloped. It's been good for the South to have all these auto plants with high paid jobs. It's bad for Detroit, but on the other hand, the exit strategy, so to speak, has does benefit, you know, poor areas, you know, poor areas and, and gives new people opportunities and so forth, I guess. Right. That's right. And, you know, we are, I, I'm, I'm, I believe in competition, among firms, and I believe in competition among localities as well. And I think there's something very healthy in America that you have this sort of constant competition among places. This actually takes us back to Manker Olson, who you mentioned. Yeah, I was, I was just going to end with that and oh. ask you to say a word about Manker Olson, who I feel like was a big deal when I was in grad school, I guess it might have been mid-late 70s, and, and as a young professor, and I, maybe he still is. I, I don't have the sense people cited as much. And say what the core argument of the book is and why you decided to write a new introduction and so forth. So the core argument of the book is in stable societies, you have uh, coalitions, 
rent-seeking groups, to use one of those one of those phrases, that that arise, which basically figure out how to use the tools of government to restrict competition and protect what they've got. Okay, uh, and this eventually leads to slower growth and the decline of nations. So you have the, the rise of nations, and then you create this sort of stable prosperity that leads to all these, you know coalitional groups that then stymie uh, future growth, stymie future entrepreneurship. Stymie innovation, change. Absolutely. Yeah. They're protecting the status quo. Now, when I read this book, I read this book later than you did, right? So I read this book in 1990 rather than in 1980, because I read it in graduate school as well, rather, which is, you know, eight years after it was written. And to me, it, that sounded like, okay, maybe that was the New York of the 1970s and 1980s, maybe, but it didn't feel like Reagan's America to me. It didn't feel like, you know, it felt like there was lots of good stuff happening in Texas and, you know, other other free places, which, you know, maybe you had some places that were, you know, mired in this regulation, but other places were not. I would say 30 years later, I think, you know, Olson's a seer. I think I think like he, he not only you know identified sort of an important channel that exists in many places, he actually told a story of America. As we've seen, you know, more and more communities embrace this type of you know, regulation on housing, which is a classic example of existing homeowners protecting what, what's theirs by stopping change, by stopping growth, by stopping innovation, um, but also occupational licensing. Right. The proliferation of you know, rules that stymie entrepreneurship and you, you raise the issue of immigrant entrepreneurs in cities. You know, I think it's a national you know, embarrassment that we regulate the entrepreneurship of the poor so much more strictly than we regulate the embarrassment of the rich, the, the entrepreneurship of the rich. I mean, if you're some, you know, Harvard College uh, student who wants to start your Internet phenomenon in your Harvard College dorm. Right. You can have a billion users before there's a regulator that knows you exist. If you want to start a grocery store that sells milk products six blocks away, you've got 15 permits to get through, right? Because the, the less educated tend to tend to innovate in real space as opposed to cyberspace, and that's just much makes it much more difficult to evade uh, um, evade the regulations. And uh, this is again a sort of a quintessential example where those regulations do most of those regulations do very little good. They do protect insiders from competition. Like for example, you know, the, the one of my pet causes on this was freeing the food truck. Right. So I, I love food trucks. I've eaten in food trucks outside of outside of my office for the last thirty years. I think it's a great a great form of, of urban entrepreneurship. And yet it's one that's regulated in in you know city after city. I remember. Uh, sometime you know, 15 years ago, I was on, a, on an NPR show where there was some woman who had a food truck called the Pink Flamingo, and it's got an a, a, a exclamation point after the O. And she had been trying to start her food truck in Detroit for 18 months. And so they had the host, they had the woman, then the ombudsman of the city of, of Detroit uh, on, on the NPR show. And first of all, the fact that like Detroit is saying no to any entrepreneur is just crazy, right? I mean, like they should be welcoming any anyone. Um, the um, the the you know the, the only the constituency that doesn't want food trucks in Detroit is just the existing restaurateurs. So it's it's just protecting the, the existing uh, existing people. And but the priceless thing is at the end of the hour, after this poor city ombudsman has been beaten up by the woman, beaten up by me, beaten up by the host, beaten up by every caller. He says, "Look, lady, just go ahead and start your food truck. We're never going to catch you." Uh, which I thought was. Uh, I guess Olson's book was later than I realized. It was early '80s. I guess he had written articles that people like me that we had read. And, and it was sort of a theme almost of um, a certain type of social science, not somewhat neoconservative, you might say, but also on the left, I'd say that the, the stagnation was a, was a threat and innovation was being stifled. The interest group liberalism, Ted Lowy, some of that stuff was similar to that, that everything was kind of the whole New Deal structure had become so embedded and stuff. 
I, it's funny. I was a tiny part of the Reagan administration and not in anything to do with economics and education, but we all thought we were sort of fighting that, you know, I mean, that was kind of the point of Reaganism in some respects, supply side economics, entrepreneurship, innovation, lower taxes, the whole supply side was sort of a, a way of trying to get at that pro-immigration, NAFTA, pro-trade. Uh, I guess what you're saying is that that was a that did not actually shape the next 30 years in, in major parts of policy, though, right? Well, we don't know. It could have been much worse, Bill. I mean, well, it could no, have been, no, I think that's been, true. Uh, you know, it's, and it's, we do have Silicon Valley and stuff. I mean, yeah. I do think it's interesting how much you know, certain parts of which sort of by accident, you might say, weren't highly regulated. This very much fits with Olson's thesis, though, right? If, yeah. they, if, they, if they weren't existing people, no, there's no existing person to block the Internet because there was nothing quite like it, if you know what I mean. I mean, so they got to be developed unimpeded in a sense. Whereas if you wanted to start a new, you know, auto company or buy or build high rise housing, as we've been saying, there were plenty or, or start food trucks, trucks, there were plenty of uh, established interest groups with their connections with the regulators and so forth, who were able to, to slow things down. How much are just generally closing on this? I mean, how much of a, do so you think it is a big problem today? I mean, Olson, it remains a sort of challenge to, to us as, as a nation. Absolutely. I think we need, I mean, I think of it from my urban lens, but I think we need cities for outsiders. I think, you know, very much what we've had increasingly are cities that are geared around the existing incumbents within the city, whether they're homeowners or restaurateurs or, you know, teachers unions, teachers, which are, you know, I mean, this is a quintessential example, like the teachers union get protected, but the people who bear the cost are the kids of poor, of poor families, right? We need to have cities that are for outsiders, whether or not, and we need a nation that's for outsiders, right? I mean, that's our, that's our, you know, the, the, the founding document is fundamentally about making this, this not just a, a country for, for people who have what's what's theirs. And that to me means taking on, you know, the, the threats that Olson identified 40 years ago and, and fighting, continuing to fight hard as you did in the 1980s. Yeah, I didn't do, we didn't do, I, know, I hope we did a little good. I mean, one problem today, I suppose, is politically sort of each party in its own so slightly odd way is not really on board this pro-innovation, pro-growth, pro-openness, globalism, to use the term, uh, you know, local local versions of globalism, uh, innovation kind of agenda. So um, the left suspicious of the capitalist side of it and the right suspicious of the innovative side of it, I guess. Right. Yeah. No, it's it's. But ultimately, like we, we we've got to keep on fighting for this one. We've got to keep I, on fighting I'm, for freedom I'm, and the ability to innovate. Yeah, no, I, I'm totally with you. Well, we'll have to have a, uh, another conversation actually in about there's somewhat interesting aspects to this way of thinking about the economy and about the society, really, that I, I'd love to continue this conversation. But Ed, thank you so much for taking the time today. People should go out and read the the, the uh, Triumph of the City and the Survival of the City and the new edition of Olson's book, which you have the preface to. And that's out just next month. Is that right? September 2022. That's great. Um, so, Ed, thank you for taking the time today. Thank you very much, Bill. It was really a complete pleasure. Oh, great. And I really enjoyed it. And thank you all for joining us on Conversations.